There is a long and storied tradition of thinking about the Roman Empire. Though the western half of their empire fell more than 1,500 years ago, the Romans have never really gone away, leaving behind traces, material and immaterial, of their achievements in so many different realms of human endeavor. From civil engineering and hydraulics, to political and legal reforms, to linguistic and literary developments, and so much else. More than any other empire builders in the Western world, the Romans have been studied, admired, idealized, and emulated by succeeding empires right on through the 20th century, for better and for worse. Today, I'd like to make the case that there is another empire worthy of our attention. One that went further than almost any other civilization in associating itself with ancient Rome, right down to its name. I'm talking about none other than the Holy Roman Empire, which gets a pretty bad rap. If you've heard of it, chances are it's been represented to you as a pale shadow of ancient Rome, a loose patchwork of squabbling principalities cobbled together in the Dark Ages, whose imperial rulers were essentially just figureheads. The assessment is not completely unwarranted, and it's been shared by political thinkers of the very highest caliber throughout the generations. The Founding Fathers of the United States, for instance, in conducting their grand experiment in state-building, seem to have regarded the Holy Roman Empire as a cautionary tale of the dangers inherent to a weak confederation. In the Federalist Papers, James Madison called the Holy Roman Empire, quote, a nerveless body, incapable of regulating its own members, insecure against external dangers, and agitated with unceasing fermentation in its own bowels, end quote. He concluded that what kept this, in his words, disjointed machine from falling entirely to pieces was a combination of the weakness of its members compared to neighboring states and simultaneously the imperial family's accumulation of hereditary lands and titles actually under their control. Only a couple of decades after this indictment, one such neighboring state, Napoleonic France, would occasion the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire with the triumphant Napoleon crudely dismissing it as, quote, an old whore who had been violated by everyone for a long time, end quote. But the most memorable denigration of all came from Voltaire, whose snide remark that such an agglomeration of states was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire, is repeated endlessly to this day. But one must keep in mind that all this ridicule came during the dotage of the Holy Roman Empire, which had almost ripped itself apart in the century prior to Voltaire in one of the bloodiest conflicts in European history, the Thirty Years' War. This was long after the age of emperors like Charlemagne, Otto the Great, Frederick Barbarossa, and Charles V, all of whom exerted significant influence over the entire European continent. In looking back to those days, one begins to realize that the story of the Holy Roman Empire is, in many ways, the story of Europe. The millennium-long lifespan of this empire is more than twice that of Imperial Rome, enveloping the bulk of the national histories of modern Germany, Austria, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, the Czech Republic, and Switzerland, in addition to prominently featuring in those of France, Italy, Denmark, Poland, Hungary, Spain, Sweden, and England. It is an epoch-spanning story, beginning in the late antique period, encompassing the entirety of the Middle Ages, and finally grinding to a halt well into the modern era. By the time we reach the story's conclusion, 
we will have gone from an age of land empires and tribal kingdoms to colonial maritime empires, and finally, to nation-states and federations. As such, in recounting this story, we will be joined by a prodigious cast of dynasties and their leading representatives, from Clovis and the long-haired Merovingians, to Charlemagne and the legendary Carolingians, and later the Ottonians, Salians, Stauffers, Luxembourgs, and Habsburgs, who would all produce memorable figures in their own right. So without further ado, let's set the stage for our Holy Roman Emperors, winding back the clock to the 3rd century AD, when ancient Rome still ruled, despite betraying the first signs of decline. The Pax Romana, the two-century-long peace inaugurated by Augustus had ended, with his kingdom of gold turning to one of iron and rust, as one Roman historian put it. This was the time of the crisis of the 3rd century, a time of political unrest, civil war, and barbarian incursions. In other words, the perfect opportunity for a tribal people like the Franks to make their debut. Neither French nor German, the Franks have been labeled as a Germanic people, with this ethnic grouping suggesting a shared heritage with the infamous Goths and Vandals. For the Franks, we have several origin stories that have been passed down to us. One story claims that they came from Pannonia in modern-day Hungary, and then crossed the Rhine before laying down roots in western Germania and northern Gaul. Another story, more fantastical in nature, claims that the Franks were descended from the mythical Trojans, whose city was destroyed by the Achaean Greeks in the tale told by Homer, the Iliad. Interestingly, this is more or less the same story that the Romans used to explain their own origins. Was this a case of imitation being the highest form of flattery? Perhaps. What we know with greater certainty is that in the 3rd and 4th centuries, the Franks launched a sustained series of sea and river raids against the Romans in Gaul, the region roughly corresponding to modern France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and western Germany. Gaul had been occupied by the Romans since the days of Julius Caesar, but much had changed since then. These were no longer the Romans of the Gallic Wars. In fact, a good chunk of the legions weren't even Roman anymore. This was out of necessity. The empire no longer had the manpower to resist the onslaught of neighboring peoples who poured into its borders either as raiders or refugees, especially toward the end of the 4th century when the Huns arrived. In the face of these demographic upheavals, the Romans gradually became more pliant, making concessions to barbarian peoples operating on the empire's periphery. The Romans would bribe them, give them land, and open up the legions to their fighting men. This is something that the Franks benefited from. Over the course of the 4th century, many became allies to the Romans, and some successfully rose through the ranks, with one or two even attaining the prestigious rank of Consul of Rome. It is at this point that the origin story linking the Franks to the Trojans starts to make more sense, as the Romans had a habit of calling their allies Trojans. So this fable may have been the consequence of feel-good imperial diplomacy. Ultimately though, just like other Germanic peoples, the Franks were not a monolith acting in unison. Instead, they were more like a loose confederation of tribes, and the alignment of individual Frankish elements with Rome was driven by self-interest, nothing more. Thus, the Franks alternated between being friends and foes to Rome for about two centuries, until in 420 AD, they wrested control of northern Gaul, about 25 years after the Visigoths had swept into southern Gaul and Spain. Meanwhile, the eternal city of Rome would be sacked not once, 
but three times over the course of the 5th century, an event that had not taken place for 800 years, that is, if you don't count the civil wars. Finally, in 476 AD, the story of the Western Roman Empire famously reaches its conclusion, with the Germanic warrior king Odoacer deposing the child emperor Romulus Augustulus. In one of those poetic twists of history, this last Roman emperor happened to be the namesake of both the founder of the city as well as the founder of the empire. In Gaul, only a rump Roman state remained, and it would not be long before it too was overrun, in this case by the protagonists of our story, the Franks, who in 486 AD won a great victory in the Battle of Soissons. This was a decisive turning point, not only in the history of the Franks, but also in the fortunes of a family known as the Merovingians. That's because the Franks had been led into battle by a warrior named Clovis, thought to be just around 20 years old at this time. He is the first Merovingian firmly established in the historical record, although he could trace his heritage back much further, at least to his satisfaction and that of his chroniclers. We are told that Clovis's father was Childeric I, ruler of the Belgian Franks who had made their home in the former Roman province of Gallia Belgica in northeastern Gaul. It has been suggested by one historian that Childeric had a career as a Roman soldier. When Childeric's tomb was discovered in the 17th century, we find in it a Roman signet ring as well as 300 golden bees. These bees would become an important symbol of Napoleonic France, embodying the diligence and orderliness that Napoleon liked to project both of himself and his empire. Like Napoleon, and certainly like his Merovingian descendants, Childeric is reputed to have been a man of voracious appetites, sleeping with so many of his subjects' daughters that they eventually drove him to exile. That may have been the end of the story, had it not been for Childeric's man on the inside, a Frank named Wiamod, who I personally consider one of the greatest sidekicks in history. After breaking a Roman coin into two, Wiamod gives one half to Childeric and tells him that he will send his half to him when the coast is clear for his return. Over the course of eight long years, Wiamod managed to slowly turn the Frankish people against their new ruler, a Roman military commander, thereby paving the way for Childeric's comeback. Upon his triumphant return, Childeric brought with him both halves of the coin, as well as the runaway wife of a nearby Germanic ruler. He would take her as his own wife, and on his wedding night, he would see a vision of what was to come. Childeric saw a procession of majestic lions, leopards, and unicorns, followed by ravenous bears and wolves, and finally by mangy dogs. This would be a fitting metaphor encapsulating what would come of his dynasty. Little else is known about Childeric, although much is debated. Nonetheless, Merovingian chroniclers entice us to go even further back to Childeric's ancestors, even if that means wading deeper in the muddy waters of pagan myth. The Chronicle of Fredegard tells us that Childeric's father was a warrior named Merovech, and that his mother had been married to a legendary Frankish ruler named Clodio, of whom even less is known. In a story reminiscent of Alexander the Great, whose mother insisted that he was the son not of Philip, but Zeus, Merovech was supposedly sired not quite by a god, but by the mythical Kinator, some sort of cross between a bull and an unspecified sea creature. It is none other than Merovech that gave the Merovingians their name, a dynasty that has gone down in history as the Borgias of the Dark Ages, 
with their story incorporating all the same plot elements, a shady and infamous past, unbridled ambition and greed, endless conniving, femme fatales, sexual licentiousness, incest, and kinslaying. This reputation can largely be laid at the feet of one man, Gregory of Tours, who has been hailed as the father of Frankish history, and more pretentiously, as the Herodotus of the Barbarians. Although his account ends prematurely, it was a groundbreaking piece of historical writing, and the most comprehensive source we have about the early Merovingian era. In the preface to his magnum opus, The History of the Franks, Gregory of Tours writes the following, quote, A great many things keep happening, some of them good, some of them bad. The inhabitants of different countries keep quarreling fiercely with each other, and kings go on losing their temper in the most furious way. Our churches are attacked by the heretics and then protected by the Catholics. The faith of Christ burns bright in many men, but it remains lukewarm in others. No sooner are the church buildings endowed by the faithful than they are stripped bare again by those who have no faith. However, no writer has come to the fore who has been sufficiently skilled in setting things down in an orderly fashion to be able to describe these events in prose or in verse. In fact, in the towns of Gaul, the writing of literature has declined to the point where it has virtually disappeared altogether. Many people have complained about this, not once, but time and time again. What a poor period this is, they have been heard to say, if among all our people there is not one man to be found who can write a book about what is happening today. The pursuit of letters really is dead in us." End quote. To me, that sounds not unlike the picture most people have of the Dark Ages the period immediately following ancient Rome's collapse, marked by rampant barbarism, unchecked religious violence, and a decline in intellectual pursuits. There is more than a little truth to this point of view. The register of crimes and follies begins with Clovis himself. Celebrated though he would be by the later kings of France and by Gregory of Tours himself, the latter's account does not shy away from recounting Clovis's many instances of betrayal, treachery, and brutality. This was a man who convinced the son of his oldest ally, who had grown weak and lame over the years, to commit the heinous sin of patricide. We can return to Gregory of Tours to describe what happens next. Quote, Clodric sent messengers to King Clovis to announce his father's death. My father is dead, said he, and I have taken over his kingdom and his treasure. Send me your envoys and I will gladly hand over to you anything which you may care to select from this treasure. I thank you for your goodwill, answered Clovis. I ask you to show all your treasure to my messengers, but you may keep it. The envoys came, and Clodric showed his father's treasure to them. They inspected everything. It was in this coffer that my father used to keep all his gold coins, said Clodric. Plunge your hand right to the bottom, they answered, to see how much is there. As he leant forward to do this, one of the Franks raised his hand and split Clodric's skull with his double-headed axe. This unworthy son thus shared the fate of his father." End quote. After covering up these murders and assuming control over the ill-begotten lands of the Rhineland, Clovis tied up another loose end. During the Battle of Soissons, a Frankish ruler named Carreric pledged to join Clovis. Although when he arrived on the battlefield, he seems to have refused to commit his troops to the struggle until it became clear who the victor would be. Now, some 20 years later, this calculated neutrality would cost Carreric dearly. Clovis marched on his lands, captured him and his son, and forced the one to become a priest and the other a deacon. For Clovis's standards, 
This was a merciful sentence, although it did mean that both father and son would be tonsured. In other words, their luscious locks would be cut off. To the Franks, who were known as the long-haired ones, this was nothing short of an abject humiliation. And it supposedly led Cararic to burst into tears, and his son to vow revenge, unwisely announcing to those present that these leaves, meaning him and his father, had been cut from wood, which is still green and not lacking in sap. Soon after that, father and son alike began to grow out their hair, but this time, Clovis didn't simply give them another trim, he had their heads cut off. On other occasions, Clovis was not above wielding the axe himself. After a Frankish raider refused to share his hard-won loot with him, the cold and calculated Clovis bided his time, something he was very capable of doing. Later that same year, when he had his army assembled to examine the condition of their arms, Clovis cornered the man who had refused him, demanding to know why his javelin, sword, and axe were in such poor shape. Scattering the man's weapons to the ground, Clovis buried his axe in the man's head when he stooped down to pick them up. We hear of another such story that speaks to Clovis's personal capacity for violence. After defeating the armies of two of his kinsmen, Ragnarkar and Rikar, who were then presented to Clovis with their hands bound, he demanded to know why they had not both fallen in honorable combat before, once again, splitting their heads open with two swift strokes of the axe. To justify these actions, Gregory of Tours gives us a thinly veiled pretext of debauchery on the part of both Ragnarkar and Rikar. But it falls quite flat in light of the preparations Clovis is described as undertaking to ensure the success of the operation. It seems more like Clovis was simply after their land, and he even paid off some of Ragnarkar and Rikar's men who ensured that they couldn't escape. But when these plotters found out that the gold that was promised to them was gilded bronze, they confronted Clovis about the trick, and he thundered that they should be grateful that he did not have such turncloaks executed outright. That about settled the matter. By the end of his reign, Clovis was running out of rival relatives and kings to kill, but certainly not for lack of trying. Good old Gregory tells us that Clovis was at it to the bitter end, publicly lamenting the lack of relatives at his court with the ulterior motive of smoking them out. How sad a thing it is that I live among strangers like some solitary pilgrim, Clovis slyly bewailed, that I have none of my own relations left to help me when disaster threatens. So you get the idea about Clovis. But what's interesting about this whole thing is that Gregory of Tours, our narrator, is a Gallo-Roman Catholic bishop writing in rustic Latin. Why then does he make allowance after allowance for the barbarian King Clovis, who he considers a great man? After all, Gregory was the very picture of piety, with his account beginning with the creation of the world itself and a historical recounting of biblical events. Admittedly, this was something of a trend of the early Middle Ages, but Gregory's religious fervor extended to such heights, and I'm not kidding about this, that he made potions for himself consisting of dust collected from the tombs and relics of saints. These were apparently a kind of home remedy for him. With that in mind, we must ask the question, did Gregory have some sort of idea of greatness transcending moral law and virtue? Was he the type to hero-worship kings in the same way that he did with saints? No, as his evaluation of Clovis's successors would show. More likely, Gregory's assessment of Clovis had everything to do with a combination of the political situation that he was enmeshed in living under the Merovingians, and with a missing piece of the puzzle, 
that I have not yet elaborated on. That being Clovis's surprise conversion to Christianity, specifically the Nicene Creed which Catholicism is rooted in. I say surprise conversion because Clovis's wife, Clotilde, had made multiple attempts to convert her husband to Christianity and to baptize their children in that faith. On the latter account, Clotilde succeeded, having her firstborn son baptized only for him to die shortly after. Even so, when her second son was born, she had him baptized as well, and although he fell ill, he would survive into adulthood, as would her other baptized children. Gregory of Tours makes Clotilde's entreaties to Clovis sound very convincing. She says to him, quote, The gods whom you worship are no good. They are carved out of stone or wood or some old piece of metal. What have Mars and Mercury ever done for anyone? They may have been endowed with magic arts, but they were certainly not worthy of being called divine. You ought instead to worship him who created at a word, and out of nothing, heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, who made the sun to shine, who lit the sky with stars, who peopled the water with fish, the earth with beasts, the sky with flying creatures, at whose nod the fields became fair with fruits, the trees with apples, the vines with grapes, by whose hand the race of man was made, by whose gift all creation is constrained to serve in deference and devotion the man he made." End quote. But to a man like Clovis, these words fell on deaf ears. It was only as a consequence of practical necessity that Clovis was baptized in the Nicene faith. Like the Roman Emperor Constantine at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, we hear that Clovis only rendered unto God the things that were God's when he sensed that military victory would be rendered to him in return. Of particular interest about Clovis's battlefield conversion is the fact that he chose to embrace not the Arian strain of Christianity, named after the Roman preacher Arius, but instead Nicene Christianity. Arian Christianity was the variant that had been chosen by the Franks' neighboring rulers, like the Visigoths and Vandals, whereas Nicene Christianity had been the official religion of the late Roman Empire. In case you're wondering about the difference between the two, it all really comes down to a debate about the nature of Jesus Christ's divinity. The Arians stressed the sole divinity of God, seeing him alone as unbegotten and eternal. To them, the Holy Trinity smelled too much like paganism. The Nicenes, on the other hand, saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three co-equal, co-eternal faces of one God. Unless you went to Catholic school and paid attention, this may all sound quite subtle, but the outcome of this theological debate means that modern Catholics are Nicenes, not Arians. Therefore, Clovis was ahead of his time, and he made the right choice. By the time Clovis died in Paris, the city he chose for his capital, he bequeathed to his four sons a unified Frankish kingdom. But he made a fatal error which would be repeated long into the future. Clovis divided his realm between his sons instead of choosing just one to succeed him. Following his example, it would not be long before the sons of Clovis turned against one another, fighting like the wolves and bears in Childeric's vision over the Frankish throne. Join me in the next episode as we plumb the depths of the later Merovingian period, before we finally meet the Carolingians, the vaunted ancestors of Charlemagne, who first appear as mayors of the Merovingian palace in Paris before usurping control and ushering in a new era of imperial hegemony in Western Europe, unseen since the days of the Roman Empire.
Since there's a few of you out there now, I thought I'd give a quick debrief of the last series about the Akkadian Empire and tell you about what's to come. The last series was slow in the coming, although that's mostly because this endeavor began pretty passively. The idea of making a history podcast not about any one single empire, but a wide range of imperial civilizations occurred to me during a long road trip crossing the Nevada desert in the start of 2022. I didn't really put pen to paper, that is to say words on a Google document, until the end of last year, at which point I began exhaustively researching the Bronze Age period. But because of a number of other endeavors, I stayed my hand until last month, when I decided that I finally wanted to put my version of the story of the world's first empire out there. Now that we're entering the Middle Ages, I have to confess that I'm even more excited. This was the first period that really got me entranced in history. This is long before anything resembling a scholarly pursuit. I was a kid, and so it was more visceral than that. Like I imagine many of you did, I daydreamed of kings and queens and all their majesty, knights in shining armor, damsels in distress, and the rest of it. But as I grew up and learned about the dark underbelly of the medieval era, it became no less interesting, probably more so. And I'm excited to be returning to it now after spending the last little while cruising the bits and pieces that remain of the far more distant Bronze Age period. Although we will most certainly return to the Bronze Age, I must confess that I sometimes found the primary and secondary sources of that period as dry as the region its people inhabited. But as with any historical period that one ends up spending a lot of time with, there were many hidden gems to uncover. And I hope that the last series did a good enough job showing them to you. Going forward, I can promise much of the same a healthy combination of education and entertainment, a Gregory of Tours-style remedy consisting of the dusty past. I'm not an academic. I just love telling stories, especially when I can draw from the well of history. So with all that said, I hope you'll join me on this journey through the Holy Roman Empire, which genuinely deserves a deeper look than most people give it. I'm as obsessed with ancient Rome as any other guy, but there's more to the past, much more. After 476 AD, the Byzantine Empire would chug along until its fall almost a thousand years later. And I've already given you a long enough spiel about the Holy Roman Empire, even if I've yet to make my case against Voltaire that at least initially, it was all three things, holy, Roman, and an empire. So the next time your girlfriend asks you if you've thought much about the Roman Empire, ask her which one.